Welcome back to the Novelty Podcast. My name is Alexandra, and I like to read from the perspective of your nerdy English teacher. The way that I phrase it is, what does the reader owe the book? And I'm Emily. I read from the perspective of a writer and editor. So my perspective is like the writer owes the reader something. Um, and here's what they owe. <laughs> <laughs> and today we have an extra special episode where I'm actually going to be basically just we're going to do it both. We're going to have a couple of these, but today I'm basically interviewing Emily on one of her favorite pet topics that she's absolutely fanatical about. This but, is fanatic level, people. Yes, but before <laughs> we get into the f the fanaticalness, fanaticism? Fanaticism? Uh, that might be the word. We must discuss what tea we're having. So, Emily, hey, what are you drinking today? I am drinking Tazo's Passion Tea, which is like a hibiscus orange herbal whatever and it is mm -hmm. delicious it's also hot pink which i find fabulous excellent i'm having twining's english breakfast very classic classic black tea yeah can't get more classic than english breakfast yes so the pet topic what is your pet topic that we're going to my be talking about today? absolute beloved novel is the phantom of the opera yeah and this goes so much wider, though, than just the Phantom of the Opera. So the reason we chose this month to do this is because this month is my 40th birthday, and for my 40th birthday, I got to go to the Paris Opera House, which has been a lifelong dream for me. When I talk, have talked in the past to people about the Paris Opera House, the immediate response is like, oh, so you've been there? And I'm like, no, I just am kind of obsessed about this building. Or I get the response like, so do you do tours at this building? <laughs> like, also um, no. <laughs> dream job? <laughs> so you're a docent. It, I, would be, I would be happy to yeah. spend my life giving tours of the Paris. It would be, I did take like several tours and I will admit like my version of these tours would probably be a little bit more dramatic yeah. than, you know, the standard issue tours, but they were still really fun. Yeah. So today, because she's freshly back from her tour, from seeing it in person, she's obviously had this obsession now for several years. Yes. It's time for me to give you guys an insight into this extra special side of Emily's personality. <laughs> to introduce you to what it's like to just be around me. <laughs> so tell me about the first time that you read The Phantom of the Opera. So I actually read a children's version of it when I was 11 years Which old. Which is wild that they would adapt that for children. <laughs> I, I'm not, it's kind of one of those things where like I don't remember a lot about it and part of me is like I wish I could find this and you know. Yeah. But I do remember like this is one of the first books where I, I just like wanted to do nothing else but read this book. Like yeah. Reese's is happening and I'm just sitting there reading it. Yeah. You know. Um, so but you know, you grow up and like, I didn't really remember anything about it. And then my sister watched the film version of the musical mm -hmm. and she came home and she's like, you have to watch this movie. Like mm -hmm. we have to watch this. So I watched the movie and there's just something about the story that like really, really stuck with me. Mm -hmm. And you and many, many people. It's I know. Such like, a it's phenomenon. not, it's <laughs> not special for like that. Like that's, I mean, I think it's the, like, it really captures the there's imagination. Something of really special about this story. So I got up the next morning and I was still thinking about it and I started researching it and I found that it was based on the novel. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, this was actually my first ebook because I was like, well, I have to have it now. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna download it and read mm -hmm. it. And um, it has just been my favorite novel ever since. I've read it many times. I've listened to audiobooks, which when listening to the audiobook, found out finally all the pronunciations for the French <laughs> names because the, 
the film I feel like kind of does the phonetic versions and then it's like oh wait that's not that's, that's not, not quite <laughs> that's not quite French yeah yeah so I've seen the play in person now two times and mm-hmm. That is something I will be doing for the rest of my life. So you mean like the musical? The the musical, yeah. yeah. The stage, staged version. So tell us a little bit about like Gaston LaRue's writing style and maybe a little bit of a summary of the plot for those who may not know and like why you think it's such a magical story. So interestingly, like in French literature, there's kind of a tradition of writing novels around like landmarks. And um, Leroux is writing very much inspired by Victor Hugo, who is uh, the writer of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And that novel was actually written as part of a movement to restore Notre Dame. And mm-hmm. during his life, the building had been pretty neglected and was like falling down. Yeah. And that novel really helped restore it's people's interest in it. Really kind of cool how the French people have a certain amount of pride about their, their culture. culture. <laughs> <laughs> and they use the arts to kind of bolster their culture in a variety of different ways. It would be neat if we could do something like that in America. America. (laughs) So yeah, Leroux is writing in this tradition. And something that I think doesn't necessarily translate into the musical, in large part because it would be very difficult, but the novel is very devoted to the opera house itself. Mm -hmm. The opera house is a character in that book. And he throws so many just like facts in there that I think are for like the contemporary artists or contemporary audience so they know what he's talking about which for me though when he just throws in a line like oh we're going down communist way and I'm just like why is there like a road under the opera house called communist way so then I'm like on google being like what what is this you know and that's kind of how I like layers you know went through the history of the opera house which that building's history is like both glorious and bloody, yeah. like seriously bloody. And so it's just like, it is a character. That yeah. building has such an incredible history. I do not, I'm not surprised at all that like a writer walked in there and was like, you know what? We need to put a horror novel in this. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually quite common for um, scary stories, horror novels or horror movies to have the place be a character within the movie. Obviously something like The Shining is quite famous for the hotel functioning like a character but it's like haunting of hill house haunting of hill house because the sense of place is obviously like what we you know you're going to this scary spot yeah the uncanny place you know um and so that's actually quite common and but also just like so fabulous that he's not making any of this stuff up yeah you know like this is the building you know and i think a huge part of him writing it is like i love this and I never want this to be abandoned. Like yeah. I want our people to always hold this building in esteem, mm-hmm. you know, and this building has not, since it's finally opened, cause it took some time to get there, but since it opened, it has not fallen, had a period of falling in disrepair like the Notre Dame did. Mm-hmm. That's how the musical and movie open. And I'm not really sure what they are referencing. I think that's fully for dramatics. There's no point yeah. in which the opera house is like abandoned, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, so. tell give us a little insight into the history of the. This could be our longest question. Yes. This <laughs> this can go a while. So from start to finish, like this building has an incredible history. So beginnings, Napoleon the Third. So the Second Empire, Napoleon the Great's nephew, is he's just started this empire again. We've mm-hmm. you know gone through two republics. Now we're going to the Second Empire. Right. And he's going to the Opera House, which is the existing Opera House they had in Paris, and the Opera House is like. 
I think we kind of conflate it with like movie theaters today. It's not that. This is the place that you go to be seen. It's yeah. your social location. You know, like it's where a lot of like social contracts and, you know, business deals and everything. Like this is like the community. It is the upper class community and the center of so much of politics. This exactly. is like if you're talking about backroom deals or the room where everybody has their cigar. Yeah. This is the equivalent the, 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 of that. Yeah, exactly. This is the place you go. And so like a lot of people in this culture actually would go to the opera house like three to four times a week. Mm -hmm. Like this is where you go. So Emperor Napoleon III, he's going to the opera house with his like whole entourage and a couple of Italian dissidents start lopping bombs at them. Uh -huh. And he survives or miraculously, but it's quite a lot of carnage. And it's mm -hmm. like number of people are torn to pieces all across the front of the opera house. Mm -hmm. Napoleon, being an emperor... First response to this is like, I know what the problem is. We don't have an opera house with a special door just for me to go into. Right. This is, and the solution is not to put a special door in the existing opera house. The solution is to make me my own special opera house. A brand new one. A just, brand new one. Just we'll start me. from scratch with my special entrance. Yeah. So like there is in the Paris Opera House, there's an entrance for like the general public, there's an entrance for subscribers, which were like generally the ultra wealthy, and then there's the emperor's entrance. Yeah. Um, so the process of like building it's pretty fascinating. They kind of had a contest to see who would like come up with the best design. The guy who wins it has actually never built a building before. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, so his name is Charles Gagné. If you, you look him up, it's like a super interesting story of this you know whole thing happening. Yeah. But before the opera house gets finished, like it's, fairly well along in its you know building the franco-prussian war happens which we can reduce down to like in essence like fancy people getting angry and sending the impoverished people to fight each other okay. like it's not yeah it's one of those wars and in the process paris is put under siege mm -hmm. and they're like in starvation zone like i've seen menus from this time era of like you know fricasseed rat and horse like they're desperate they're in yeah. a really bad so the opera house is not being finished. Right. And at that time, it's actually being used to store ammunition, mm -hmm. which we already knew how bad that went with the Parthenon, so I don't know why we decided to go there with the Opera House. Well, you got to put your munition somewhere. So you picked the fanciest building, right? obviously. So fortunately, that did not go as bad. Well, because the non-fancy buildings are being used for something else already. You either got to put like a hospital in their munitions. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would have picked hospital, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of stairs, so maybe that's why it didn't work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, anyway. yeah. That France gets its clock cleaned. Prussians go back to the, you know. And Paris is kind of left with this, like, we didn't even win. We went through all of that, and yeah. we didn't even win. And they've suffered more than, like, all of France, right? Right. So the people of Paris decide to start the first communist revolution, which until reading this novel, I, and this doesn't specifically come up in this novel, it's more, you know, a fact that's kind of just alluded to, but researching it found out, I didn't realize this was the first ever communist revolution mm -hmm. that, you know, happened. Like the, yeah. I always thought of it as the Russians. Yeah. Um, so the city of Paris declares itself its own state. It does not want to be a part of France anymore. It wants to be its own state. And France can be all around. Exactly. But we don't want anything to do with these people. And it's a really fascinating time. It's a very short-lived time, but a really fascinating time in their history. And, of course, you've got this big fancy building there that's not being used. Mm -hmm. So, headquarters. Right. You know? Like, 
Why not? Yeah. I mean, this building is fantastic. It has like, you know, nine levels and like three of them under are underground and, you know, it, it begs to be used, you know, yeah. <laughs> but the rest of France is like, no, you can't have Paris to yourself. Like that's, that's not going to happen. Not gonna we happen. need our capital. Yeah. So also, we're all the way around geographically, not a good choice. No, no. So French army gets sent in and yeah. this is what starts, what's called the bloody week, mm. which I don't like it's amazing that this lasted for a week where the French army is literally fighting street to street to street with just like average Parisians who don't want to be part of this. Right. Like and it's sometimes like hand to hand combat. Like it is horrendous. Mm-hmm. And they fight all the way back to the opera house. Yeah. Now, here's where like history and legend kind of get mixed together and I can't find anyone who will like for sure say that like one way or the other. But legend is, and I guess there is some evidence to like suggest this is true, is that all of the communist leaders were actually executed at the opera house mm. and buried in the basement. Oh. That there's like a mass grave in the basement. And Leroux was like totally accepting of that. Like right. he's like, oh yeah, 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 bodies all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well, you gotta have bodies to have a good haunting. Yeah, you know, like embrace that, right? So we we go back into like now we're in the Third Republic, mm-hmm. and the Republic is you know Napoleon the Third has been exiled. Mm-hmm. Fascinatingly, he never goes to this opera house. He never gets a chance to go. He doesn't get to use a special door. He doesn't door. get to special door, no. Mm-hmm. And the Republic actually is like, hey, we don't want to finish this building. We want to use this building because it's all about the empire. Yeah. And, like, we're not going to do that. Till the other opera house, because it's got a lot of gaslit lamps, burns down. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem when the opera is still, like, where you go to make your deals and be yeah. seen. So they're finally like... Call Charles Charles Gagne back. Yeah. We're going to need to finish this. Right. You know, but now you've got a building that's just like, its history is blood soaked. Mm -hmm. And now you're bringing over an entire troop of people who are extremely traumatized. Yeah. Like a lot of people died in that fire. So like the people who come over are survivors. There are all kinds of, you know, horror stories that come out of that. There's a story of a composer who Mm -hmm. was badly disfigured and goes mad and wants huh. to just never leave the opera house. Oh. Hmm. Ariam. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So all of this background. And then one day the chandelier just falls, just comes down. Yeah. And like the, the official response is like, Oh, it was a technical error. The unofficial response is we to this day have no clue what happened. Mm-hmm. Shows up to that is a uh, guest on the rope who is a newspaper reporter at the time, and he's sent to cover this gigantic, mostly iron mm-hmm. chandelier falling on someone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it was... That's, this is not, like, a fancy little, you know... This is a very serious chandelier. So, the bro shows up, starts investigating, never finds out why that falls, but in the process of investigating, falls in love with this building. Like, he actually ends the novel with this, like, plea to people. Like, please go here. Please Mm -hmm. see this place. Mm -hmm. Even this, like, and try to, like, not be stuck on a tour with a stupid tourist. Like, go find it for yourself. And it's like, well, okay, but we don't all have a press pass. So, like, you know. So you had to do the tour. I had to do all of the tours. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's that's a good little detail. All of the tours and then come back and see a performance. Okay. I went here three times. <laughs> okay. Yep. So that clocks. Yeah. That tracks. Because the building itself like completely lives up to everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
I would not say that I'm in general like a fan of Rococo style, mm-hmm. but my God, it works in that building. Yeah. Like that building is fantastic. Yeah. Although interestingly, mm-hmm. we did go to see the emperor's official entrance. Yeah. The Republic would not allow it to be finished. So the entire building is like gilded. Yeah. And then you walk into this one room and it's just concrete walls. Which is, like, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. He never went there. He never got to sit in his emperor's box. He never got to go through his door. But the rest of us get to enjoy it, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah. That's probably just fine. Yeah. Okay, well, give us a little overview, because there are some differences between the book and the musical, which probably most people are more familiar with the musical right. than the book. But give us a little summary of the plot of the story according to the book. So... The overarching plot between the two are very similar. Mm -hmm. There's a young Swedish girl who has been, in essence, like, is uh, hired at the opera to work as part of, like, their choir. And there's many levels that basically you come in as a performer at, like, the lowest level and then you possibly work Mm -hmm. your way up. And she is not a particularly good singer until all of a sudden she is a good singer. Mm -hmm. And, And she's telling people, like, the angel of music has visited me. And she's, like very willing to believe that this is actually the angel of music promised to her by her father on his you know deathbed but actually it turns out it's a crazy guy in the basement so (laughs) you know happens to most of us i mean anyone's susceptible to that right especially if you got a little trauma your parents died you know yeah and of course the catalyst for this all falling apart is all of a sudden like a young man that she had known just a few years ago who they were both kind of on the verge of falling in love and then circumstances separate them suddenly shows up at the opera house and they immediately reconnect Mm -hmm. and this isn't okay for the monster in the basement (laughs) yeah monster in the basement is maybe a little bit obsessive yeah yeah so in the musical the pursuit of christine by the phantom is definitely one of romance yes is that the same for the phantom of the opera in the book the phantom of the opera character in the book who's actually named in the book in Mm -hmm. the film he's in the musical he's never named um in the book his name is eric Mm -hmm. and they are distinctly different in their maturity level yeah so like the phantom in the book talks about how he wants a wife which obviously the musical Phantom wants one as well. But when you ask him what a wife is, the response is like someone to go on walks with me, mm-hmm. you know, someone to ride in my carriage, you know, someone to listen to my music. Like it's not, he's very, you know, on one aspect, like the same psychopathic murderer and another aspect, like very childish and doesn't necessarily understand all of his own, you know, mm-hmm. behaviors and things like that. So it's a much, much more complex mm-hmm. character and in some ways a more frightening character and in some ways a more sympathetic character. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, and this is kind of the nature of any time you translate a book to a film or a book to a play, you're going to lose some of those layers. And that's just something you kind of have to accept Mm -hmm. and why, you know, the book is usually better. I mean, I will say, like, I started with the musical and I love the musical. Mm -hmm. And I always will love the musical, Mm -hmm. but the book is better. Yeah. Um, And what about Christine? Has she changed much between the novel and the... I think Christine and Christine and Raul are the characters that I distinctly prefer in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, Christine in the musical is your classic dis- damsel in distress. Um, she's very kind of shoved around by the different the characters, moving political forces, and so yeah, forth. Raul wanting to like capture the Phantom, and the managers wanting the, you know the show to go on, and the Phantom even wanting to have his ingenue, yeah, wanting wanting her for himself, and and she, also her as a performer. 
to be the, yeah. the vessel for his music. music. Yeah. And um, she, in the middle of that, is like basically begging to be allowed to leave. And they're like, everyone's like, no, you're make great bait. Yeah. And, you know, she's very, it's kind of like you feel very frustrated for her. And even though she ultimately is the character who saves the day, she also saves the day with her only bargaining chip, which is her sexuality. Right. Like, that's what she has to offer. Mm -hmm. And so, like, those are, like, complex issues that were, like, you know... Yeah. The novel was written in 1909. Yeah. The musical was in the 1980s. And somehow in 1909, Christine has way more agency. Mm -hmm. You know, like, Raul is actually the one telling her... We need to leave. Yeah. And she's like saying, I want to sing one more time. Right. I want that for myself. Mm -hmm. I want to give that to the Phantom. Mm -hmm. Like, this is my choice. Yeah. And ultimately, when she saves the day, you know, it's not really her sexuality that she's bargaining with because the Phantom, the way he speaks, he really just more is lonely yeah. and just wants a companion. And it's mm -hmm. like herself as a person that he wants, not mm -hmm. just like the hot makeout scene. Yeah. Okay. So what about Raul? Raul is a character that I understand why people in the fandom kind of don't really like him in the in the musical because in the musical he is a very classic nobleman. He's very proud. He's you know revels in his noblery. You know all of these things. He's very like he controls everyone and everything around him. Mm -hmm. He's actually a merging of two characters from the book. Okay. In the book, it's Raul and his older brother Philippe. Mm -hmm. And Philippe is much more like Raoul in the musical, and they just kind of merge those two characters together. Raoul in the book is very young and very sensitive, and is kind of really struggling with who he's supposed to be. Oh, so he's nobleman. got like the classic second son nobleman. Yeah, kind exactly. Of okay, yeah, I'm yeah. tracking And with Philippe you. is much, much older than him. He's more like a father figure than yeah. he is, you know, a brother. Yeah. Um, and so he's trying to like mold Raoul and tell him how he's supposed to behave. And in essence, is kind of being like, hey, listen, these opera work people, opera people, they're our sex workers. That's mm -hmm. what they're here for. Yeah. You know, and Raul is very uncomfortable with pretty much all of this. Right. And I find it really interesting. We're going to do major spoilers here. That in the musical, Raul, you see him later in life. He's a nobleman for his whole life. Mm -hmm. In the book, Raul leaves nobility and, mm -hmm. and just runs away from it all because he just can't. There's yeah. no happiness for him there. Mm -hmm. And this is like when people like are like, oh, I would prefer Christine to like end up with the Phantom instead of Raul. Yeah. Like, he's still a psychopathic murderer, guys. Like, yeah. that's not healthy. But I understand like he's such a more sympathetic character than Raul. Whereas in the book, it's more of a coming of age story for Raul mm -hmm. as he learns to like stand up to right. his own class. And so I feel like he's much more, more likable and I like him and Christine together because she's also you know, been in essence very used by her society. She's like an orphan mm -hmm. and, and the treatment is kind of like, well, you're lucky to be here, yeah. you know, and she's basically like, I don't actually like being here, yeah. you know? So both of them are kind of coming to that point where they're rejecting what society wants from them. And I think it just makes much more sense if Raul is conflicted about his position in society that even before the novel opens that they would have connected with each other yeah. because they're from two very different classes. Yeah, the story. And also like that's kind of one thing that... Again, because it's a musical and it's, you know, everything has to be shortened, it kind of seems like Raul and Christine just, like, have only met once and they meet and they're, like, instantly in love. And, of course, in the book, like, there's a multi-year, like, development of that mm -hmm. relationship and you understand why when they meet again, they just suddenly, like, you know, Connect. like, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what do you think are some of the 
the political statements that LaRue is trying to make because there's obviously this rejection of class. We have this, you know, this reference a little bit to communism as well as undergirding yeah. this story. Even the character of the Phantom himself, he seems to be, you know, anti-nobility in a lot of ways. Maybe you can show them the yes, we have, versions have we have here. Many. This is like the Barnes and Nobles version, which yeah. I absolutely love because so many footnotes yeah. and also an entire article on the Opera House but then also we have to have the illustrated version. Yeah, which and so is, this is, outfit is symbolic, and I want you to talk about that as well. So this outfit is, um, he. so in the movie or in the musical, you see him show up in a red outfit, and, you know, that's yeah. the thing. In the book, he is specifically referencing Edgar Allan Poe's um, Red Death mm. novel, and in the book, I mean, the Phantom is a drama queen. Like, we're just, <laughs> he just is. Yeah. And so, like, he comes out dressed as Red Death, to the point where he's got like a cape that says, I am Red Death, mm-hmm. touch me not. You know, yeah. like he's, it's huge. He's not being subtle. No, no. And I mean, Red Death is basically a story where a bunch of noble people are trying to avoid the plague. So they hold up in a monastery and have this huge party for themselves, celebrating the fact that they have escaped the plague. And then Red Death walks among them and you know, takes them all out. So it's basically yeah. a story of like, you can't escape death regardless of your position in mm-hmm. life. This is directly what he's been saying. So the Phantom feels that he is able to come through and, and cast judgment, basically. On the yeah, exactly. Class. The novel very, very much cast judgment on, you know, the upper class, which, I mean, France has had so, so many conflicts throughout it, the last century over whether or not they even need a nobility, right? right? Like, this is... I mean, French Revolution 101. Yeah. And this has happened over and over again. We're in... At this stage, the Third Republic. So we have done this many times now, and we will continue to do this. Like, this is something that's very internal for them. And Leroux comes from working class. Mm-hmm. He's, he's not nobility, and he clearly does not think well of nobility. Like, this yeah. novel is very strongly like, yeah, these people are jerks. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's kind of unfortunate because I feel like that whole layer of the story is really missing from the musical Musical. version. Yeah. Which maybe you don't want to do like a political commentary in your musical. A love triangle might be a lot more fun. (laughs) Not criticizing, you know, could do a political ballad instead of a love ballad, but I I get it. I will say though, it's really interesting to me the differences in the the way the stories work when you look at the differences in the lives of the writers. Mm -hmm. So um, Andrew Lloyd Webber is the creator of the musical. Obviously, he's leaning heavily on, you know, the source material, but he's also, like, recreating it. And, like, by the time he writes this, Andrew Lloyd Webber is basically, like, musical royalty. Right. He's in a very, very different world than LaRoe is when he's writing this. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think, like, that translates into why it doesn't... It's not really a big deal for him to trash the nobility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. This is one of my favorite questions to ask about literature. I've talked about it with Jane Austen. But there are certain, you know, stories that become kind of cultural phenomenons. They go far beyond... They have a cultural reach far beyond, like, even a very popular book that's a New York Times bestseller. Right. They become part of the cultural conversation. And when The Phantom of the Opera, like, musical first released and was out on Broadway. It was huge, one of the most popular musicals that ever happened. When the movie was released, what was that, in the early 2000s? Yeah. Reignited it yet again. And obviously this book has been in print ever since it was published and has had a long legacy. So what do you think is kind of at the core of what makes it such, such the cultural phenomenon that it is? 
I think this is in large part the character of the Phantom. Um, if you think about like, you know, a lot of fiction that carries through, it's often like a character like a Sherlock Holmes or a Hercule Poirot, like a character is yeah. really the driving point between why this lives. And I think that's very, very much the Phantom's character. Yeah. Because like, the Rose succeeds in writing someone who is a like, awful villain. Like mm -hmm. he is a killer, you know, and there's like no sugarcoating of that. Mm -hmm. And yet at the end of it, you feel so deeply for this character. And I think that's like really successful as a writer mm -hmm. like that's difficult to do and he's yeah. not doing like you know there are a lot of writers who will be like super cheesy about that you know and not take yeah. into account like you know a villain is still a villain like he's like yeah. holding both of those together like he's still a villain and he's also like really sympathetic and mm -hmm. I think that that character is really what makes this book so compelling I mean, yeah I mean like We've had multiple music uh, movie versions of this. Like this yeah. character is just like captures our imagination. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I I think that's like the ultimate. It translates, I feel like, really well into a visual mm -hmm. because it's just like the it's background about a theater. Yeah. yeah, the background is so fantastic mm -hmm. that you can do so much with that and make it so magical that mm -hmm. yeah, like it it feels like an obvious choice to make this yeah. visual. Yeah. So I think for most people who are probably listening or to our podcast, they probably have, you know, watched the movie or seen the musical, um, which I've also seen and have, it's just so much fun, obviously. Yeah. What would be your pitch for why they should go and read this as the novel? Um, what do you think they should be prepared for that might be different or things that they should keep in mind as they're reading so they can keep an eye out for it? I think first and foremost, like if you like the musical, you get so much more of mm -hmm. it in here. Like if you like the Phantom, you're going to get so much more detail about him. Yeah. So like if you like any aspect of it, just expect to have more. Yeah. So that, that would be like my main reason why like it's so worth it to read the book. Yeah. You know, cause like the musical is what, like a couple hours, mm -hmm. like you got, you got a lot yeah. more going on here. I, I would just look for all of the ways that LaRoe is clearly pointing out what he does and doesn't like about French society. Mm -hmm. It's actually really interesting. Like there's a whole scene in there in which a, um, a character who's only ever introduced as the Persian mm -hmm. walks into the scene and he kind of becomes a major player later on. And it's really sad that he's not in the musical cause he's a fantastic character. But like yeah. there is a really interesting display of like the French people in the opera being extremely racist towards this character simply because of how he looks. Mm -hmm. And LaRoe starts making fools of them mm. for the way that they're just assuming who he is based on his skin color. Yeah. And it's like, again, this is 1909, guys, and he's figured this out, you know? Yeah. So yeah, there's just a lot of like historical things in there that I feel like there are some ways when he's talking to a contemporary art audience and expecting them to just kind of know what he's throwing out there. But, you know, that made the book even more fun for me because then I could go Google, like, what the heck is he talking about? And then yeah. you just have, like, a whole other, like, wormhole to fall down. Yeah. And would you recommend this version for a first-time reader? This uh... The Barnes & Noble's version is where I started, and I absolutely love it for the footnotes because there are some things that, like, you know... You don't are... necessarily want to pause and go do a 30-minute Wiki Wikipedia wormhole. But it's, like, kind of just helping you basically understand the structure of, like where this is in Paris, like, why it's important in Paris, like, what they're even talking... Because there are some things that are just thrown out about, like, you know, places in France 
that don't make any sense to the reader where those have a footnote and be like, here's what they're talking about. I'm like, oh, yeah. thanks, that, that helps. I love Barnes Noble's footnote editions because they, I feel like they just give you little bits of help along yeah. the way to be like, oh, is that what that means? Because French. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And then one final question that is totally off script here for us, but tell us a little bit about the like subterranean like water that's like featured in the movie and is part of the book. So that's an, there is an actual like lake under the thing. So yeah. basically, when they sunk these super deep, you know, footings to yeah. hold this gigantic building up, they suddenly discovered that like, oh, there's a swamp under here uh-huh. and a lot of water coming up. Uh-huh. So they had to create like this interesting like basin area to like control the water. Mm-hmm. And I think I don't know why this doesn't come up in like the because this is fascinating to me. In the original like structure for the way the stage, because there's you know they've designed the stage. It's like massive. Like I think they, I've heard that like about 500 actors can be on this stage at one time. Wow! And they had like live animals in the performances. Like when you rode on onto the stage, you were doing it on an actual horse. Like this, yeah. these productions were out of control. And so like they had these huge uh, sets that would come up and down, and they actually designed them to work with a hydraulic system and oh. use the water in the basement to pump these things up That's and down so it's, fascinating. it's really a technical wonder of the way i mean it's not how it's done anymore but like that's the way it was originally designed it doesn't look cool like you know it does in the film you can actually go on google maps and yeah. see everything inside of the opera and they google maps will go down under and show you what it looks like in the basements uh-huh. if you want to be underwhelmed by <laughs> so there's a lack of like candles and like lace and like creepy drapery i don't know let's just put it this way right now is there an organ underneath there for him to play on let's put it this way the what it's used for today is paramedic agencies that do search and rescue and water that's actually where they train okay so it's like a training pool (laughs) exactly it's a giant training pool okay well, I would really like someone to put up some spooky decorations for me. I mean, I don't know why we haven't done this yet because, I mean, you have to you have to know that like how many people are coming every year to this yeah. opera house because of the story of the fan of the opera. Okay, I have one last question for you. I know I said that that was my. Oh, ask time. as many. We can keep talking <laughs> yes. about this. So my next question is: When are you going to host a phantom themed dinner party for us all to show up in costume and have and French food? Sing. And well, oh, okay. I mean, we some of us will be allowed to sing. <laughs> Not all of us. <laughs> but we'll eat French food and wear yeah. masks. Okay. Because we should definitely. Actually, an are you gonna dress up as Red Death if we do that? Oh, that was so. T- Actually, yeah, <laughs> I've like always thought that that would be a fun costume. <laughs> but I mean, like, I'm just saying we should do like phantom themed Halloween party, right? I mean, it's not like I've pinned multiple pin masks on Pinterest as yeah. like, you know, great ideas. Okay, here's a fun fact that a lot of people don't know. In the book, the mask is a full face mask. It's oh. kind of described as what you would see like as a Venetian mask, which is yeah. would be a natural reference at that time because in Venice that's a very yeah. huge tradition, like the full face mask. Yeah, I actually did see something about this for the musical production. Apparently, they had done a full face mask originally, really? yeah. but you can't sing with that, obviously. Well, and, and like, project. And if you'll notice, like a lot of the um, like production material um, has like a half mask on mm-hmm. it. And like uh, when the original musical came out, like up until like the last moment, they were going to do the half mask. And then the original performer came to Andrew Lloyd Webber and was like, "I can't 
function in this. I need you to, to redesign this. So that's why they did a half mask because it's basically yeah. as close as they get to comfortable for the actor to sing in the mask. Yeah, I would not want my hot breath like blasting back yeah. in your face. But the, I mean, the the half mask is very iconic. Yeah. You know, so that's you know, I don't think that they like that was a fail. Like I think that was if you're going to have to work in those circumstances, that yeah. they definitely did something very iconic with that. Yeah, and I think it's you know you don't see any other mask it's so unique so yeah. it, it doesn't allow it to reference to anything historical or cultural it's it's entirely its own thing yeah but it's so unique that you have like this sort of swirl yeah. across the face and it really highlights his deformity yeah 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 which in the novel like the like in the in the musical it's like you know this half of my face and my hair is not that great in the novel, like, he is a fully deformed person head mm. to toe. He has no nose. Oh, like, yeah. it's a really... And, and that's kind of, you know, part of, like, the backstory of, you know, he how he's lived his life mm-hmm. and, like, w- what he's gone through looking like this and what this reference is. Because, in essence, it's described as he looks like a corpse mm. and, like, how that has played into, like, his entire life. Mm-hmm. Again, read the book. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And then, of course, we get the Persian and all of these other little side things. I just love the Persian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, is there anything else that you would want listeners to know about your favorite novel, your pet topic, the way it intersects with history? Because you're a history nerd, too, so I know that's part of it. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, I the these events surrounding like how this story even came to be to me that makes it like even more special Mm -hmm. and so like that's why I kind of like encourage people to know history because it makes what you're when you're reading something from another time period like it makes it so much better to like know what was going on during that time era I mean that's something that's been really fascinating to me with like even Jane Austen's work to know like these very pastoral like you know, novels where you're not getting the sense of anything really happening yeah. are like taking place in a very yeah. very like huge time of upheaval in England and they're at war and all of these things so it's, I always find like it adds so much more mm-hmm. when you you know just know a little like you don't have to go and like read a huge textbook on this but just yeah. like find out like well, what was going on at this time or like what yeah. is this author referencing it just makes reading so much more fun yeah Well, I think that wraps it up for us. Thank you so much, Emily, for sharing your passion with me yet again, but also with our audience because... Like I would be sharing it with you. Yeah. They can't stop me from doing this. Yeah, (laughs) I think it's great. I think it's absolutely the best. I actually had someone like I was... Because I don't shut up about this. And I was telling a history student all about like, you know, basically the wars that like were part of this thing, everything. And he stops me and he's like, I need you to go back to school and get a doctorate because I want to take your course on this. And I was like, thank you. (laughs) It's very interesting. It's a fascinating story. Yeah. So you can find our podcast, obviously. Uh, We'll have it on my YouTube channel. We have it on Google, Apple, everywhere that you can listen to our podcast. Spotify, all of that good stuff. We do have, obviously, contact information in the show notes. If you have any questions, send them our way. Or you can comment down below if you're watching on YouTube. Um, And until next time, my name is Alexandra. And my name is Emily. And this has been the Novelty Podcast.